This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Marina Hyde beseeches each and every one of us Stay angry about the post office scandal. Charlotte Edwards meets Heartstopper star Kit Connor. And writer Lily Sherless explores the genesis of boundaries in the world of therapy. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, the post office scandal is still playing out right now. People whose lives were destroyed deserve justice. Those responsible are contriving to make sure they don't get it. Marina Hyde explains why we should all be paying attention. Read by Serena Mantegi. Pop your teeth-grinding guards in and gather round, because it's time to talk about the post office scandal again. It remains something of a downer that the most widespread injustice in British legal history doesn't get the full-spectrum fever coverage that is lavished on more frivolous news. But then, the forces formerly known as The Man have always wanted this one covered up. Don't worry if you're only belatedly catching up, the second best time to start absolutely losing your mind that any of it was allowed to happen is right now, while the official inquiry is underway and precisely no one has yet been held accountable for the ruin of hundreds of completely innocent lives and the causing of deep suffering in thousands more. Box office-wise, despite its slow burn, The post office story has it all. It's a tale of total corporate psychopathy, a mad Kafkaesque nightmare in which totally innocent sub-postmasters, the very backbone of villages and communities, were turned into criminals, 
to cover up the fact that the post office's Horizon computer system didn't work properly. Each was told by the post office that no one else had any problems with the system. Vast sums were effectively looted from them to make up accounting shortfalls before they were prosecuted anyway. Distraught sub-postmasters were imprisoned, pregnant, or still in their teens, or on their young child's birthday, or in their old age, or in high-security jails where they saw and suffered terrible things. At least 60 have died without seeing justice or compensation. At least four took their own lives. Countless victims were driven into physical and mental problems from which they have never recovered. Honestly, the full catalogue of stories would take more than a book to cover. I strongly recommend The Great Post Office Scandal by Nick Wallace, and every single individual case forces you to stop, catch your breath and ask yourself, what the hell did I just read? And here's the kicker. The scandal is still playing out right now. The cover-up is still underway right now. Right now, in London's Aldwych House, Wynne Williams's long-awaited and tirelessly fought-for inquiry is hearing evidence. Except on the days it can't, because the post office is continually failing to hand over evidence. Right now, the weeks turn up completely eye-popping new revelations, like the discovery of a document proving that post office investigators were ordered to group suspected sub-postmasters in racial categories, such as Negroid types and dark-skinned European types. This advice was still in use in 2011. That document was also, somehow, not put before the inquiry, would you believe, along with tens of thousands of others the post office has been accused of serially withholding. Last week, on the very night before a crucial evidence session from an engineer for Fujitsu, the firm that designed and maintained the highly defective Horizon accounting software, the post office suddenly found a mere 4,767 relevant documents it had forgotten to mention. So, his evidence was not heard, and the inquiry again had to be halted. Right now, even seasoned watchers of this epic saga are getting their heads round the recent revelation that today's post office management actually ran a bonus scheme to reward executives for cooperating with the inquiry. To adapt that old Chris Rock routine about people who nobly take care of their own kids, you're supposed to cooperate with the inquiry. What do you want? A cookie? Right now, the inquiry is uncovering details like the fact the current post office chief executive Nick Reed got a £455,000 bonus last year, a mere 3% of which he has now returned, judging that bit to be the part that related to giving a shit about his obligations to the inquiry. I paraphrase. Fifty other senior post office executives also got inquiry-related bonuses. Bear in mind, this is an organisation that said it needed up to £1 billion from the taxpayer to fund the compensation and clean-up, otherwise it would be insolvent. 
Oh, you'll be insolvent now, is it? And bear in mind, this was at the same time as, say, the case of Francis Duff, an 81-year-old former sub-postmaster who lost his house, business and marriage in the two-decade wait to be absolved and compensated. He was finally awarded £340,000 last October, only for the post office to immediately swoop in and tell him he would lose £332,000 of it to cover income tax and the bankruptcy their own erroneous actions had forced him into. He couldn't afford to heat his home last winter. On Monday, the inquiry's chair, Wynne Williams, who I'm developing a bit of a public servant crush on, appealed to the government to protect victims and expedite payments from the various compensation schemes. It's kind of amazing that in addition to Sir Wynne's mandated task of working out WTF happened, new events and revelations keep forcing him to work out WTF is still happening. Why is the post office continually failing to hand over documents to the inquiry? Why are the three patchwork compensation schemes such a mess and taking so long? Why doesn't the government minister responsible for the post office, Kevin Hollenrake, step in right now and grip this, unlike all his predecessors in the role who failed the sub-postmasters so badly by simply accepting any old rubbish the post office told them. Ultimately, of course, one of the biggest questions for many remains, where is Paula Venels? Venels was the chief executive for much of the period during which the postmasters were wrongly pursued, as well as an Anglican minister in a somewhat eyebrow-raising detail. Internal reports she commissioned repeatedly found the post office may have prosecuted completely innocent people and that the IT system was a mess. Venel saw to it that no one was told about these conclusions, from the sub-postmasters to Parliament. She eventually left the post office with a CBE and £5 million richer, failing upwards into some cabinet office business role and chairmanship of an NHS trust. Venels has since gone to ground, but her giving evidence to the inquiry when it finally comes will be a momentous occasion. Whether it will lead to anything you'd call justice is another matter. A chap I corresponded with not long ago thought the entire over-remunerated executive class covering the period in question should be chucked straight into prison and have to argue their way out, which is, in a way, what happened to so many of the poor people who were the lifeblood of their business. But perhaps post office bosses past and present know that while such a nightmarish thing could happen to a sub-postmaster, or on this evidence perhaps even one day to you or me, it couldn't really happen to them. Then again, the surest way to foster that kind of outcome is indifference. So let's all resolve to stay very, very angry about this one. That was, after 20 years, here's why the post office scandal is special. The cover-up is happening in plain sight by Marina Hyde. Read by Serena Manteghi. Next. 
Kit Connor is 19, lives at home with his mum and dad, and is a megastar, thanks to Netflix's take on the teen gay love story. Here, the actor talks to Charlotte Edwards about accusations of queer baiting, being outed at 18, and his pal, Elton John. Read by Callum Finlay. We are walking in Borough Market, Kit Connor and I. It's his favourite area of London, he says, then worries that might sound like a dumb cliché. No, but it's cool, he continues, speaking aloud these thoughts as he untangles them, even if it is a cliché. This is the bit of London he knows best, in that it's 30 minutes from Croydon, where he lives. Yes, with his mum and dad. He's still only 19, after all, even if we've been watching him on screen since eight. He likes that Borough is near the South Bank, the National Theatre, the British Film Institute. He's going through a retro phase with films, incidentally, an exploration of the history of the leading men in cinema. He's gone all the way back to Marlon Brando's early work. Also, James Dean. He was recently photographed for Vogue in Breton Stripes, invoking the famous Dean shot from the summer of 1955. He likes the brooding, the look. I'm trying to do it a little bit, he says. What do you think? He turns to face me. He's wearing a white T-shirt and battered Carhartt jacket, which he picked up in a vintage shop on a recent trip to New York. Yes, the hair has a touch of fifties, longish and swept back on top, cropped-ish on the sides. Come to think of it, that complexion does too. Milky, lightly freckled, slight ruddiness creeping up the cheeks. Although I can't imagine him grimacing through the smoke of a dangling cigarette, or driving faster than the speed limit, or throwing a punch in a state of existential rage. He's just too sweet. Nor can I imagine hurting his feelings. So I say, yes, very brooding rebel. The thing is, he doesn't like the word heartthrob, he says as we continue walking. It's a bit... He leaves the sentence unfinished. Cringe is what I guess he means. Unsuitable for the modern-day teenager. Even one playing the hot lead in a Netflix love story like Heartstopper. The show that made Kit a star is based on the graphic novels by Alice Oseman about two schoolboys navigating their first queer relationship. Connor plays Nick, who is bisexual. Joe Locke plays Charlie, who is gay. In the first month after release in April 2022, Heartstopper was viewed for a staggering 53 million hours, quickly becoming the fifth most watched English-language Netflix show. The second series, which drops on the 3rd of August, is the most anticipated series this summer. Not that Connor was a total novice to the industry. Unlike Joe Locke, who had no experience, Connor had played the young Elton John in the biopic Rocket Man, released in 2019, working alongside Taron Egerton, Jamie Bell and Richard Madden. He appeared alongside Lily James in the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society, released in 2018, and Ben Wishaw in Little Joe, released in 2019. None of this prepared him for the sudden impact fame of Heartstopper. Yes, 
There were the trips to fashion shows in Paris. There were the front row seats and the fuss and flattery. But there was also a shit show on Twitter. Questions about his sexuality, people prying into his love life, and the online stalking of his family members, including an older sister, aged 23, and brother, aged 21, who could not care less and are not very interested in my career. While Heartstopper is explicitly about queer love, Connor was not asked his orientation when he auditioned. It would have been so inappropriate to ask a 16-year-old, he says. But there was something unspoken in the little notice before the casting call saying, we really want the characters to pass authentically. I was thinking, well, I feel I can play this role very authentically. I knew that I was a queer man, but I didn't feel I wanted the world to know. Not because I was ashamed, but because it was private. All good, until he was papped holding hands with Maya Rafiko, his co-star in the forthcoming film A Cuban Girl's Guide to Tea and Tomorrow. Heartstopper obsessives wanted to know why he was holding a girl's hand. He was accused of queer-baiting, defined as straight people appropriating queer culture. Some might shrug off online pylons like this, but Connor says he was still very freshly 18, still newly in the public eye. I wasn't used to the idea of millions of people watching what I was doing or having a genuine interest in my private life. At home, one evening, he padded about the house working himself into a stew, then did something he now describes as, frankly, a bit rash. He typed, I'm bi. Congrats for forcing an 18-year-old to out himself. I think some of you missed the point of the show. Bye. It was a human instinctual reaction, he says. I did it, turned off my light, and went to sleep. On set, the following morning, his cast member friends ribbed the hell out of him, he says with a smile, which was good because it took the sting out of it all. He wants to be serious for a second. He wants to add that the whole point of the show is that queerness is not always so stereotyped. There are so many lines in the show where someone goes, Nick Nelson, he's the straightest guy in school. He's the captain of the rugby team, so there's no way he's queer. Sometimes we just need to give people space. Season two, which deviates a little from Oseman's original work, incorporates a lot of Nick's struggles coming out, which is important, he says. He won't say who he is or isn't dating now. He will say that he'd be self-conscious of dating a girl. I would, annoyingly. I would be more conscious and might be less open about it. Later, he returns to this subject. Although now I know that I'm queer, I personally don't find it a super-defining factor. I wouldn't want to be defined by queer actor. I want to play all parts. Hopefully I can do that if my career lasts, if I flourish, touch wood. But first, we discuss Heartstopper. The show's charm is its innocence, and for that reason, Connor never thought it would be a hit. We were surprised anyone was watching it, he says, extra shocked when he learned American audiences loved it too. He couldn't imagine savvy modern teenagers buying into the guilelessness. We don't have any drugs in this show, we don't have any sex, we don't even have vapes. 
So, yes, it was wild. Especially with 18-year-olds. I thought it might hit a slightly lower age group. I was looking at the TV shows people my age were watching, and it was super saturated with dark, sexual content. Pretty stressful to watch shows. Euphoria, chiefly. But also 13 Reasons Why, Top Boy, Skins is still popular. Even Stranger Things and Sex Education had their moments. Heartstopper provided an antidote, Connor believes. It was called the anti-euphoria thing, which was catchy but true. It subverted what was out there in other ways too, he argues. For the most part, queer media is pretty dark and depressing and involves a lot of trauma by focusing on how hard it is to be yourself. Whereas we wanted to push the other message, that being queer can be beautiful. There will be adversity, sure. There are highs and lows, but the highs can be really high, so it's worth fighting for. Plus, he feels it's important for young queer people to have a gentle, romantic show. I don't think there's a lack of queer sex in the media, A lot of the time when queer people are on screen, especially gay and bisexual men, they are heavily sexualized. So I think there's something quite nice about the fact that we're not sexualizing it. Director A. Ross Lynn deliberately sought the opposite, Connor says, to capture the sentimentality and charm of old Hollywood romances, complete with Charlie standing on tiptoes for a deep, passionate kiss after sports day. Perhaps because of this, audience appeal was surprisingly cross-generational. Sure, he gets the teenagers showing him the tattoos they'd had in tribute, most popular, the leaf illustrations that the series lifted from the original graphic novel, but also their characters, or the little hi that Nick and Charlie say to each other. People have that in speech bubbles. But he's also stopped by older Queer men in their 30s, but also plenty in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Proud and overjoyed that younger people in the queer community are starting to have these experiences in school. Season 2 of Heartstopper is less chaste, in that the issue of arousal is touched on, so to speak. Connor says the love scenes are a lot less awkward. Firstly, because the relationship between Nick and Charlie shifts. Because it's no longer this angsty, nervous, adorable, like, we have a crush on each other. We are boyfriends now. But also because Joe and I are so much more comfortable doing those scenes with each other. It was a lot easier. And that relaxed vibe comes across. We've all improved as actors, too. By now, we've sat down outside Brother Marcus a Middle Eastern cafe, and are ordering coffee. He orders a latte but declines food, explaining, I'm not one of those people who can leave the house without breakfast. I've been doing, like, eggs on toast over the last few months. There's something in his need still to be an ordinary 19-year-old that makes him impress on everyone how normal he is. This is the kind of conversation he has with Olivia Coleman, who plays his mum in Heartstopper, he says, because she's just so normal so emotionally available. The life that I lead is really quite normal and very boring. The highlight of my day is often walking to Tesco. I can tell a story about my day-to-day life and she'll be right there with me and interested. But the next minute we're talking about Taryn Edgerton, 
who he worked with on Rocket Man, and whom I am lucky now to be able to call a friend. And a recent lunch he had with Sir Elton John, whom, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm lucky enough to be able to call a friend. That segues into this. The first time I met him was in Cannes, which is an insane sentence. The combination of growing up on film sets, the pandemic and sudden fame has done something unusual to his development, Connor believes. He says he's both very mature, not least he was earning money when his older siblings were still receiving pocket money, and also very immature. He's shy, introverted, rubbish in group settings. It was like, how do I do this social life thing? I really can't talk. One-on-one, he's relaxed, voluble and terribly sincere, as I am witnessing today. Every few minutes, we've been stopped by young people, wanting a picture, wanting to tell him how much they love the show, wanting to say, wow, man, thank you for everything you do. It was worse when he was at school, he says, blush receding after another selfie. Teens used to congregate at his bus stop, knowing he'd be there, same time every morning. It made the ordinarily self-conscious state of being a teenage boy doubly, triply worse. He felt the scrutiny intensely. Couldn't roll out of bed, must with his shirt tail flapping. Had to check the mirror, check he was presentable. Redo his hair. Checky looked like you're supposed to, as the boy whose clips were viewed by billions on TikTok. So, yes, I say. I can see why he's preoccupied by the description, heartthrob. As the school's star rugby player, Nick Nelson needed to have physical presence. The series' producers supplied a nutritionist, and he recounts how he did push-ups, hundreds a day, in his dressing room. Wardrobe put him in a school uniform a size too small to give a sense of mass. Although occasionally he looked as if he would split the seams, Hulk style. The character in the comics was like six foot two and quite burly. He's a big boy, an athlete. I saw that and was like, I'd like to put on a little bit of muscle. It was exciting. By the time we came on to do season two, there was definitely a noticeable difference. I'd also grown in height. Wardrobe took one look at him and ditched the two-fitting uniform. I think the crossover between seasons one and two is about a night, but in reality it was a year. When you watch it, Nick has inexplicably bulked up a lot. Maybe you have to suspend disbelief a little. In March, Connor's personal trainer sent corners of the internet into a sweaty meltdown by posting a picture of him shirtless, moody, and let's just say, quite buff, alongside a video of their session. Fans inevitably spoke. While most approved, Kit's the only person who could make me watch a 25-minute gym video, said one. Others lashed out, calling him basic and a beast. Has he felt pressure to conform to the Marvel body type? (laughs) It's not a thirst trap, he laughs. I'd just been in the gym, so I'd got a bit of a pump, and it's like the best possible light to take a picture. People say, you don't really look like that, 
I agree. I don't. I used to go five days a week, and at first it was very much about the aesthetic. Now I go a couple of days a week for my mental health. I just sit down and kind of blow off some steam, and I find it really helpful. He lapses into an anecdote about how he was coming back from Milan yesterday, and the driver who picked him up at the airport was clearly using that muscle-bound superhero picture as his steer. He looks me up and down, and I shake his hand, and then he's like, Oh, you're a pretty decent size. I was like, sorry? He said, I saw this picture of you and you look quite big, and I thought, oh, that's probably just him in a film or something, he's probably not really like that. But you are. You're pretty well built. Now Connor is telling me the story, he isn't sure if it sounds like a humble brag, and he gets in a tangle saying that it's both funny that people look him up and see that photo, but also embarrassing. He wouldn't want that to be the enduring image. But also, it's not the worst image to have out there. After all, he's not ashamed of his body or anything. It's just it wasn't meant to be a thirst trap. He doesn't want to be the lame guy who posts shirtless pictures of himself after working out. His blush deepens as he chases his tail, trying to escape the spiralling topic of his physique. Eventually, I redirect him with a new question. And he looks grateful and relieved. Connor was born in March 2004, youngest of three. His parents, Richard and Caroline, both in advertising, were definitely not the kind to drag him to Harry Potter auditions. But he went to the children's performing arts group Stagecoach to overcome shyness and get me out of my shell. This led to a series of small parts, Sky Sitcom Chickens, An Adventure in Space and Time, Casualty, before he moved up a step to more recognisable roles. Tom Anderson in Get Santa, Archie Beckles in CBBC's Rockets Island, Petya Rostov in the BBC's 2016 War and Peace. He appeared on stage at the Old Vic as Alexander in Fanny and Alexander in 2018, although it pissed him right off that he had to share the part with two other kids because of UK child labour laws. He attended the Whitgift School, which he says was a rugby-playing school, not unlike the one in Heartstopper. If you weren't getting down and tackling people into the mud, then you probably were not that cool, he says. He was a drama boy. Not unpopular. I had friends. But when Heartstopper came out, certain people started talking to me that otherwise wouldn't have. I had these big, macho rugby boys coming up and saying... I watched Heartstopper, and I really liked it. Well done. And I was like, wow. His fears that there would be a negative reaction to Nick and Charlie kissing in the series were unfounded. Luckily, I was not bullied. An American mother and her 14-year-old stop him. The mother does all the talking. They are from Seattle. Her daughter loves the show. She'd love a photo. The daughter can't speak. She's so struck by real flesh and blood Nick Nelson. She looks both pleased and startled as they pose. What's your name? Connor asks her. She whispers it. Really good to meet you, he says, shaking her hand. He says he loves being mobbed, loves the attention. 
loves appearing in photo shoots for Vogue, for GQ. A slim teenager with high cheekbones stops. Oh my god, he repeats over and over, hand to his mouth. The girls he's with are giggling. I'm worried he's going to cry. Connor is super friendly. Super appreciative that he stopped to say hello, he tells him. While he was recognised a bit in New York, he was there for work but also went to Pride and Vintage Shopping to build on his collection of Carhartt jackets. On the whole, he was the observer. He felt like just another teenager. Alone, without family, free from the burden of being known. He was astonished by the stars he saw. He doesn't name them, just says, people in the street that made me go, oh my god. He also went to a bar, via Carota in the West Village, and immersed himself in the pastime of people watching. It was one of the first times that I've been able to do that. I just sat at the bar, ordered my food, and watched. I saw two people on a first date, two people on an anniversary dinner, a person at the bar reading a book. It was fascinating. He could riff for hours on why observing life is great. He's discovered Raymond Carver's stories, which are amazing in many ways, not least for his dyslexia, being short. He can write poetically about things that are so mundane. It's the filmmaking he loves too. Observational stuff like After Sun, and a short he saw the other day called Being Human by Swedish director Clara Bond. I always refer back to that clip of Sir Ian McKellen doing an Oxford Union address. He said if you can't afford tickets to the theatre, or if you don't have a TV, sit on the bus and watch people. Go and see how people live and exist. Start there, and it'll make you a better actor. And I do think that it does. When people ask what makes a good actor, aside from classical training, I answer whether it's true or not. You have to be able to understand people, how they work, how different people would react to different things. It's the lunchtime rush, so I walk him back to Borough to get the train. He skips enthusiastically and earnestly through a range of subjects, from AI to cancel culture. I mean, maybe this is just me being a hippie, but I think people should just be nice to each other and have an open discussion about when people are saying things that are ignorant and wrong. He tells me how much he'd like to do more theatre, and also play roles that are against type, I would lose the weight for a roll if I had to. And we're at the station. He's sweet and polite and thanks me a million times for my time. He asks me if I'm going to be alright getting the tube and getting home. And then, when I laugh, he realises what he said and colours. That was Heartstopper's Kit Connor. I wasn't used to the idea of millions of people being interested in my private life. By Charlotte Edwards. Read by Callum Finlay. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. The World Cup is here and can you hear that? That's the sound of you missing out. Drop everything you're doing, unless you're driving, and tune into the Guardian Women's Football Weekly podcast, because with even more teams and more living legends than ever before, this is one hell of a World Cup. To keep up with all the action, we'll be doing three episodes a week for the entirety of the tournament, you lucky things. We'll have the usual guests and lots of new voices. Join us, Suzanne Rack And Faker Others, and listen to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, as therapy speak becomes normalised and more recently weaponized, the notion of boundaries in particular has become deeply entrenched into our everyday lexicon. It's a seductive metaphor for how our relationship should work. But where did it come from? Asks writer Lily Sherless. Read by Serena Manteghi. We are obsessed with invisible circles. Personal boundaries, or often just boundaries, are nowadays seen as the hallmark of emotional maturity. Wellness influencers promise that if you clarify the line dividing you from those around you, your boyfriend will stop envying your career and start doing the dishes. Children will stay out of your home office, Friends and lovers will stop using you as a screen for their projections. As you are released from everyone else's psychodrama, your racing thoughts will quiet, and your ability to concentrate will return. You will learn to say the word no, protect your time, and double your salary. This is how the concept is sold to us by an army of life coaches and content producers. But... Boundaries have a moral authority that's easy to abuse, and actor Jonah Hill's text messages to his ex-girlfriend Sarah Brady are an especially drastic example. These are my boundaries for romantic partnership, he announced, trying to turn a list of jealous, misogynistic prohibitions no surfing with men, no swimsuit selfies, no friendships with women who are in unstable places into a rap sheet of ethical violations. Hill drops boundaries into the conversation with self-satisfied finality, transforming it from a therapeutic tool into an implement of emotional abuse. Most actual boundaries experts would agree that telling your partner who to spend time with is a symptom of terrible boundaries. Even so, the basic concept has received shockingly little critical attention, Where did boundaries even come from? 
A slew of recent books, podcasts, articles, social media posts and talk shows are all sharing the message of boundaries. Set them, communicate them, enforce them, respect them. The past two years alone have produced Melissa Urban's The Book of Boundaries, Nedra Glover-Tawab's Set Boundaries, Find Peace, Terry Cole's Boundary Boss, and finally, Michelle Ellman's The Joy of Being Selfish, Why You Need Boundaries and How to Set Them. They are featured on CNN, Forbes, Oprah Daily, The New York Times, The Goop Podcast. Tawab's book had an advance of six figures and grew out of a viral social media post. In other words, boundaries sell. For these authors, boundaries are invisible to the naked eye, requiring the special techniques sold in self-help bestsellers or by self-care influencers for you to learn to perceive or implement them. Or you can learn by trial and error, like a dog wearing a shock collar who learns the location of the electric fence. It's like everyone in the world is mindlessly wandering toward your vulnerable core, and if you don't tell them where to turn back, you might get trampled. As it turns out, everything can be explained as a matter of boundaries, which slip and slide into conversations where they don't belong. Take this recent story on NPR's Marketplace, in which a reporter discusses a woman who accused her friend of not respecting her boundaries. The offending friend was guilty of getting an unappealing haircut just before the accuser's wedding. We can roll our eyes and say she's abusing the term, but boundaries chronically slip out of bounds. Experts have wildly different accounts of what boundaries partition. They divide what's you from what's me but also designate appropriate and inappropriate behaviour and or compartmentalise different realms of life. For many therapists, every hard feeling might be a boundary issue in disguise. Tawab sees through her clients' stories to the real issues beneath, bad boundaries. If you peel back all the layers of someone's self-narrative, she argues, you find a deeper level of the psyche, where everything boils down to boundaries. I am not anti-boundaries, but they are so rarely questioned because they have a seductive moral authority as the dominant metaphor for how human relationships should work. Attempting to dig up how personal boundaries got so popular is not easy. When contemporary psychologists write about boundaries in venues like Psychology Today, They discuss them in the present tense with no citations. For these writers, boundaries don't need a history. They simply exist and therefore require management. I found this highly suspicious. The story of boundaries, which I'll retrace here, took me back to the early 1990s when boundaries erupted suddenly into the self-help mass market and then to the mid-1960s when they cropped up on the fringes of ego psychology. First, we should talk about where I did not find boundaries. Most major schools of psychoanalysis. I think a lot of readers imagine that the self-care industry is simply bending Melanie Klein or Sigmund Freud or Jacques Lacan slightly out of shape, when in fact many analysts seem to agree that psychoanalysis is more or less designed to muck up people's boundaries to trouble their placement, 
their firmness, their brittleness. Instead, boundaries materialised seemingly out of nowhere in 1989, when the motivational speaker and interventionist Jeff Van Vonderen dedicated one page to personal boundaries in a book called Tired of Trying to Measure Up. Boundaries are those invisible barriers that tell others where they stop and where you begin, he wrote. Personal boundaries notify others that you have the right to your own opinion, feel your own feelings and protect the privacy of your own physical being. And then the floodgates opened. In 1991, a therapist named Anne Catherine published Boundaries, Where You End and I Begin, proclaiming the value of divvying up your emotional life. The next two years saw a parade of titles like Boundaries in Relationships, Knowing, Protecting and Enjoying the Self, and Boundaries, When to Say Yes, How to Say No, to Take Control of Your Life. All this quickly spawned a subgenre of HR discourse. Boundaries flourished in the professional literature of social workers, healthcare providers, clergy members, therapists, and lawyers. People across the workforce were encouraged to store their work stress in a Tupperware container that lives permanently in the office kitchenette fridge. According to these early authors, boundaries empower us to determine how we will be treated by others. Like the mind was for some, boundaries are a muscle you strengthen or let atrophy. And, like any good liberal idea, they amplify choice, letting us choose what to let in and what to keep out. Everyone has a lot of needs right now. This is partly because capitalism leaves many people's basic needs unmet and partly because being a person involves wanting a level of intimacy and security you can never have and trying to get it through other people. Too many of us, the boundaryless, are tangled up in each other's endless needs and desires. But we are teachable, and if we learn to manage boundaries correctly, they can unhook us from obligation, protecting us from dissolving into someone else's demands. Boundaries do this by teaching us to relate to other people as if they are the one thing social systems are most determined to protect. Property. Most boundaries books of the early 1990s unselfconsciously steal imagery from land ownership. As Henry Cloud and John Townsend, the authors of a very popular distinctly Christian boundaries book, put it, just as homeowners set physical property lines around their land, We need mental, physical, emotional and spiritual boundaries for our lives to help us distinguish what is our responsibility and what isn't. The 1990s fetish for the suburban lawn is also everywhere. Like any fence, boundaries require maintenance, writes Anne Catherine. Some people are like ivy. It's tiresome, but if we let these people stay in our lives, we must keep pruning them and throwing the behaviour weeds out of our yards. Good fences make good neighbours, said Robert Frost, though his neighbour may or may not have hated him. To put all this in context, Cloud and Townsend wrote their book in a place, the Western US, that had been sliced and diced into ownable plots by the government in the past two centuries. Many of the settlers who bought them built fences, which killed many bison thanks to the invention of barbed wire. They also published the book in 1992, 
when the US was trying to become an Ayn Rand novel. If liberalism is about having the freedom to own things and having your ownership protected by the state, neoliberalism is about having more freedom to own more things and being held responsible for how much you do or do not own. As they write, to rescue people from the natural consequences of their behaviour is to render them powerless. Boundaries are all about holding individuals responsible for their lots in life. The problem with this opinion is that the world is designed to force us into financial and emotional dependence upon one another. Boundaries make dependence look like misplaced possessiveness. To survive and thrive, we are encouraged to unhook from one another, sealing ourselves off as individual cells rising the ranks of society. Your time and energy are something you own and lease out to others. Having good boundaries is enforcing the terms of your lease and abiding by the leases of others. Having bad boundaries is demanding squatters' rights. A lot of us, me and my friends among them, try to live by models of intimacy pitted against possessiveness. Other people aren't objects to be controlled, many of us feel, refusing to apply property logics to our friends and lovers. To be possessive of another person, for instance, by controlling their sex life, is to fail to accept their separateness. We try to acknowledge and then nudge away jealousy as a relic of a violent, expropriative regime. Boundaries make this easier to talk about. But boundaries themselves are based around relating to yourself like a plot of land you own. If boundaries are seductive, even to those of us who do not like property logic, Perhaps it's because social structures are constantly trying to take things away from us. It doesn't feel like the right time to ask your neighbour to take down their picket fence when a SWAT team is surrounding their house. This is a sticky topic to write about. I worry that critiquing boundaries implies that you expect people to keep you emotionally afloat in an often brutal world, something no one can do on your behalf. Boundaries escape criticism because to criticise them is to suggest you are the kind of person who asks others to scratch an itch beyond their reach. I know the itch cannot be scratched, but why do we have to tell a person that they violated a sacred line in order to let them know they hurt us? Worse, I worry that picking a bone with boundaries suggests I condone abuse or am blind to power, Boundaries are, for example, a clear and convenient way to assert that your body isn't simply available to everyone. The protective bubble of law and morality does not yield because someone has power over you. This use has a long history. Boundaries show up in 1980s court cases and legal literature about domestic violence. In these pamphlets, with titles like Wife Abuse... Experts describe how abuse decays a woman's boundaries, leaving her unable to enforce her limits. But even these uses seem to devolve into victim-blaming. I've counselled women who have been victims of rape, wrote Van Vonderen in 1989. None of them say, I'm important and I don't deserve to be treated that way. More often they say, I should have known better than to have been there at that time or to have dressed that way. They have no sense of their right to boundaries. As my friend Natasha Lasky put it, boundaries promote a comforting fiction that if you use the right words, you can control whether or not you get exploited by others, 
and protect yourself against it. But you just can't. And what's worse, feeling like you can makes you more likely to blame other people for being exploited. This kind of victim-blaming is an especially appalling contortion of what's called ego-psychology, a school of thought that aimed to churn out powerful, individuated people with ample self-esteem. This seems like a natural birthplace for boundaries, but the word rarely appears. Most ego-psychologists prefer to discuss the self's defences. The exception is Edith Jacobson, whose iconoclastic 1964 book implores readers to draw a thick, sharpie line around their egos. Firm, sharply defined boundaries are the pinnacle of personal development. But generally, boundaries came to psychoanalysis from the outside, as if slipping in through the service entrance. Two early family therapists, Murray Bowen and Salvador Mnuchin, borrowed the term, from the interdisciplinary science of systems theory in the 1960s, which has vague associations with the US military. It sees the world as a set of systems which share the same principles, whether they are families, solar systems or molecules. Systems must maintain their boundaries, taking some things in and keeping others out to continue to exist. The family therapists borrowed boundaries from systems theory and watered them down, to be a little less technical and a little more moral. Mnuchin compared his clinical style to samurai training. Tactics included direct confrontation and musical chairs. Pyrotechnics aside, Mnuchin had a tempered view. The therapist should map and modulate them, not just strengthen them. Bowen spent his life combating the problem of the undifferentiated family ego mass. The American family was a sad bag of marshmallows left in the sun, plagued by emotional stuck-togetherness. The most developed among us keep emotional functioning contained within the boundaries of self. Such people are always sure of their beliefs and convictions but are never dogmatic. They can feel intense love while wholly comfortable with the fact that at any moment a lover could leave them behind. I have never met a person this well-adjusted. Politically, undifferentiated ego masses were having a moment. During the Second World War, many saw individualism as the best inoculation against fascism. It makes sense that boundaries arrive through Jacobson, who escaped Berlin after being imprisoned by the Nazis. The grinning crowds of blonde Germans in propaganda films was seen as the ultimate bad outcome of a society full of people with no fucking boundaries, as we would put it now. When communism became the national enemy, this kind of ego psychology started to feel like a winning geopolitical strategy. Personal boundaries were an unofficial component of the Cold War arsenal. It also makes sense then that therapists adapted the term from a field associated with missile engineering. It also makes sense that some philosophers on the left vehemently opposed boundaries, instantly clocking the rhetoric as an implement of social control. Norman O. Brown took it a little far. The proper outcome of psychoanalysis is the abolition of the boundary, he argued in 1966. True to its moment, Brown's book reads like an erudite triplog on a psychedelics forum. Demolish the threshold between real and unreal, 
good and bad, mine and yours, love and hate. As I dug deeper, I was surprised by how cleanly opinions about boundaries seem to track with shifts in political consciousness. If boundaries appear in the mid-1960s, amid the building and maintaining of geopolitical walls, Berlin, Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, maybe the 1990s resurgence has to do with their sudden mass demolition. The many boundaries books of 1991 were presumably conceived around 1989, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the sudden dissolution of several sovereign regimes. National borders melted into air, so people mapped their craving for lines onto their relationships. Meanwhile, due to the AIDS crisis, other people's bodies seemed dangerous in a new way. People without close knowledge of the disease were confused about the actual logistics of transmission, worrying HIV might leap from skin to skin. It's hard not to feel that the popularity of boundaries reflected a non-conscious demand to contain gay sex, to cordon off queerness from the general population. It feels slick and too easy to analogise like this. But it also feels absurd not to, because even now, this whole way of thinking is built on literal analogies to property and national security. In her 2022 bestseller, Melissa Urban, who is known for developing the notoriously restrictive wellness programme Whole30, which she claims is not a diet, offers a helpful shorthand for measuring risk to your boundaries, the US Department of Homeland Security's levels of threat. Green, yellow and red threat levels all merit different conversational scripts. She also includes threat level fuchsia, which... Homeland Security does not recognise, but anyone who's been in front of their ex's current girlfriend after multiple tequila shots surely does. From this perspective, our bodies and minds are little nation-states, populations of cells and thoughts and feelings in need of defence. Boundaries will never shake this legacy. They keep us seeing our political economic systems as modelled on ourselves, and vice versa. Having good boundaries means living a series of contradictions. Don't be difficult, don't bottle up your emotions. Have friends you can lean on, only lean on them in ways that are convenient for them. Definitely do not lean on them financially. Be vulnerable in front of people you love, don't cry too hard or for too long. Many people are unmarked landmines of explosive need, Avoid them. Boundaries are a band-aid in a bad world. If you can't expect people to care for you and treat you well and protect you from violence or scarcity, you can at least protect yourself from their needs. There isn't anything straightforwardly wrong with doing this, negotiating other people's needs, which are often unreasonable and unfillable and intolerable, is fraught, baffling and overwhelming. It demands a good, strong metaphor, and the image of boundaries is unusually potent. But the term takes on its own momentum, overrunning intimacy with alienation. In its most extreme forms, boundary speak makes it feel like some of us have given up on each other. The only effective social strategy left is to lock yourself in, fortify your defences, 
If your emotional defence budget isn't big enough to hold the line and you get trampled by other people's greed, that's on you. One thing I have learned from psychoanalysis is that everyone is always kicking and screaming against separateness. Boundaries arrive to rescue us from this hurt, not by eliminating this separateness, but by accelerating it. They provide guidelines for living separateness, without having to feel it. Bad boundaries, you see, can be fixed. You can be fixed. Good boundaries are an achievement that promises to protect you from existential lack and also exploitation. This will fix you, these books implore. You can leave the great boundaryless masses behind for emotional maturity. That was Boundaries Are Suddenly Everywhere. What does the squishy term actually mean? By Lily Sherless. Read by Serena Mantegi. A version of this piece was first published in Parapraxics magazine. Before you go, we wanted to tell you a little bit about Guardian Masterclasses. They say that everyone has a book in them, but getting it out into the world is another thing. Why not make it happen this year with Guardian Masterclasses? Our online writers' retreat, starting the 24th of July, is packed with live workshops and support from some of the biggest names in literary fiction. Find out more and get 10% off by entering the code WRITERS10, all lowercase, at theguardian.com forward slash retreat dash masterclass. What will you write this summer? That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Serena Mantegi and Callum Finlay and presented by me, Evelyn Miller. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.